0: we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources. And we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want it is extraordinary you can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org hello and welcome to the american birding podcast i'm your host nate swick it is the last week of the month and that means this month in birding and we'll get to that but before we do we have some exciting news to announce from the aba and to do that i am joined by ABA president, Jeffrey Gordon. Hello and welcome, Jeff. Hey, Nate. What news do you have for us?
1: Oh man, there's a bunch of news. You know, it's like spring is here and uh, things are cautiously looking up on COVID and, and man, just a lot seems to be going on. Um, one thing that uh, I think you noticed last night and alerted us all to, um, and that would have been uh, Monday night, yes. um, The ABA, the American Birding Podcast, just got its millionth download. One
0: million downloads. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yeah. I think that says as much about the longevity of the podcast as about the quality, but I will take either one.
1: Well, you know, I, I, I would go for both, I think. Um, and that's one thing that uh, we all really appreciate about you, Nate, is um, you're reliable and, uh, you know, you're always shipping stuff. And it's always good stuff. Some well-earned congratulations. Oh,
0: thank you. I, I do appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but we have some other stuff to talk about. Um, Jeff, what, what what is the big news, the big ABA news?
1: Well, the big news is um, with uh, COVID kind of hopefully on the run, um, it's it's definitely time to start thinking about traveling again. And um, and that means, in addition to announcing some new travel opportunities, we have two new job postings yeah. here at the ABA. If people go to aba.org slash travel, they'll see that there are some opportunities to travel. Um, as soon as... Later in May, we have the uh, West Virginia Adult Birding Camp, which I know you've been to, Nate, mm-hmm. and um, we feel confident that we can offer it in a way that is safe. And uh, you know, particularly if folks have been vaccinated, um, they may be looking for something that they could even drive to, what have you. And and you'll see, just looking down the line, we have in June, uh, Minnesota, North Dakota. In late June into early July, Oaxaca in southwest Mexico. That's still a terrific time uh, to visit there. We will be doing Oaxaca again next year in April, in April 2022. So if that is more comfortable, um, that's an option too. You know, we have a bunch of stuff. We have a great Ecuador birding bash coming up in July We have our currently sold out, but you never know, um, (laughs) safari to Antarctica in November. And we'll soon be announcing the 2022. safari to kenya in february of
0: 2022 so yeah so that that sort of is a nice lead-in to one of these positions (laughs) uh we need people to help with events
1: we absolutely do we're we're advertising for a half-time events coordinator and that person would be helping uh design and promote and register basically it's like just about every job at the aba it is a uh people job it is Mm -hmm. taking care of people and um uh so the events coordinator helps with uh with all those kinds of trips they also help with um you know like when we go to festivals and stuff Mm -hmm. you know also looking for innovative opportunities to do um you know new kinds of trips and stuff Um, so um that is a great position for somebody with experience in travel ecotourism hospitality, um, logistics, all that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And, and what else we've got, a, we've got two positions actually.
1: Yeah. And we have another halftime and I should say, you know, both these jobs, I don't want to dangle anything, but both these <laughs> jobs definitely have the opportunity to get larger, you know, yeah. to get more towards full-time, but they're halftime to start. The other one is a coordinator for our young birder programs. And that is, is i think just a super exciting i mean you're joining um organization a program that has a track record of really mentoring and helping develop many of the leaders today a lot of the people that appear on this podcast are yeah. in the yeah. pages of burning and it, you would be involved in helping uh coordinate the young birder of the year mentoring program you would help um with the Young Birder Camps, I'll work with the events coordinator on that, um, and a couple of a new exciting Young Birder initiatives that are in development. Uh, but I think the thing that's really cool, the thing I really like about the ABA's Young Birder programs is they're, you know, they're Young Birder centric, we we are, you know, used to dealing with teens, but they're really an opportunity to rub elbows with, learn from, and to help teach you know, us and mm-hmm. the, you know, adult birding community. And I think at the ABA, we realized that young birders, uh, you know, are every bit as serious, quote unquote, or accomplished as, yeah. Yeah, you know, definitely. many people much older um, and maybe have been birding for longer. And, um, and you know, it, this young birder coordinator is uh, can be a bridge um, between those groups. And, and I think it's one of the things that keeps vital and exciting.
0: Yeah. So I have two questions for you. Yes. One, could some enterprising person theoretically do both jobs?
1: It is theoretically possible. And (laughs) (laughs) um, truth be told, we had uh, Liz Gordon in, you know, basically in kind of a hybrid of the two. So if somebody wants to make that case, um, definitely that's
0: possible. Yeah. And the second one, uh, what is it like working for the ABA? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, you
1: know, obviously we're a nonprofit, and we do have a mission. We believe a world with more birders is a better world, and um, we think birding can add to everyone's life. Generally, you know, in the birding industry and working for nonprofits, neither of those are considered ways to become independently wealthy. <laughs> but
0: would that it were.
1: You know, I I do think it's an uncommonly talented and devoted uh, and caring group of folks. And I think we realize that uh, people are people first and employees second. And I, I think we give folks uh, flexibility and opportunity to, um, you know, kind of have that elusive work-life balance. So, I would agree with that. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Because I know you've got full plates all around. Yeah.
0: Thanks for that, Jeff. You can get more information about both of these positions at aba.org/slash work with us. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, so on the show this week, it is this month in Birding with a panel of Nicole Jackson, Miko Jimenez, and Ryan Mendelbaum. We talk finches, old goals, lights out Philly, and more after this week's reverence. <laughs> This is your rare bird focus for the third week of March, 2021. Not a ton to report as seems to typically be the case this time of year, though I will put out an alert for birders to keep eyes open for unusual cranes among the sandhill cranes that are migrating in huge numbers in many places across the continent right now, as three common cranes have been seen in the last week among sandhill flocks, one in Newton County, Indiana, and at least two near Kearney, Nebraska, both states known for their sandhill flights. Common crane is effectively the Eurasian equivalent of the primarily North American sandhill crane. There are a lot of similarities. Like sandhill crane, common crane occurs in very large numbers. They have a broad range that stretches from Eastern Europe all the way to Eastern Russia, and they have impressive migrations that see them winter in parts of Southern China Northern India, Iran, the Arabian Peninsula, and Ethiopia. They tend to intermingle with flocks of sandhills in Northeastern Russia, which has a population of breeding sandhill cranes, uh, where a handful just end up migrating to North America because that's the direction that the cranes are going. In recent years, common cranes have turned up in a number of states and provinces. It's not clear how many are over here, uh, but given the nomadic nature of sandhills, one individual could very easily be found in a number of different places as the birds kind of move around. Now is a great time to find them, where sandhills are staging as they make their way back north. Common is the most common, obviously, but Hooded and Demoiselle Crane shouldn't be discounted either. The former recently added to the ABA checklist based on an individual shot by a hunter in Alaska and the latter, an unaccepted sighting from some years ago uh, from California that some believe to have been a naturally occurring vagrant. Those are the highlights of the week, but we round up the entire rarity landscape every Friday morning with ABA's rare bird alert at aba.org/rba. You can also find us on Facebook. You can join our Facebook rare bird group. That's at facebook.com slash group slash ABA rare, or follow us on Twitter at ABA bird alert. Uh, It is the last Thursday of the month. And that means this month in birding for March, officially, meteorologically, birdingly spring, finally, even if it is tumbling in like an awkward albatross landing. Uh, And to this first spring panel of 2021, I welcome three excellent birders. First up, a birder, environmental educator, and the creator of Black and National Parks Week. Welcome back, Nicole Jackson. Hello, Nicole.
2: Hi, hi. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, next up, an outreach biologist for Audubon's Migratory Bird Initiative. He is new to the panel, but not to bird Twitter.
3: Hello and welcome, Miko Jimenez. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Regular listener, first time on. Excited to be here. Fantastic. And uh, last alphabetically,
0: but first in the heart of Finches, the creator of Birdmodo, among other things, they are Ryan Mendelbaum. It's great to talk to you again, Ryan. I love being here and I love Finches. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, we'll talk about Finches, but first, you know, let's start with maybe the beginning of the end of the pandemic. I think this month is the first that it really feels like there is a, a light at the end of this particular tunnel. And there have been a lot of the sort of, I don't know, what have we learned type pieces not all related to birds of course but audubon published one on the website on their website earlier this month by daisy Juhasz, uh about the anthropause and what it meant for wildlife and, and certainly people like us who enjoy watching wildlife i remember early on in the pandemic there are a lot of these stories about nature healing quote unquote or, or adjusting or whatever and it looks like now with several months perspective things were I don't know a little more mixed. I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts or if you saw any effects of this anthropos yourself, either personally or in the work that y'all do. What do you think? Do you think that uh, there was something really happening, something really going on with this? Or was it just sort of people paying attention more?
4: So from the finch perspective, uh, this actually is pretty interesting that uh, due to COVID, they were forced to scale back some of the spruce budworm spraying operations in Canada, um, which is interesting. So spruce budworm is this, uh, it's a native bug, but it, it can be a blight for some of the loggers up there that feasts on the boreal. Conifers. And, um, but the finches actually quite like the spruce budworms. So, evening grosbeaks, pine siskins, purple finches, uh, they'll all eat the bugs or their larvae or their casings. And uh, some people think that the reason we had so many finches this year could have been in part because of the scaling back of the spraying operation during COVID.
0: Yeah, I think that's really cool. I remember Matt Young, when I had him on the podcast, talking a little bit about that, how um, this might be like the first of many years of like evening grosbeaks coming down south, which is. Very exciting.
3: Yeah. And in terms of like, you know, is it, is it, are there like actual ecological things going on or is it, are we seeing things differently because of our own behavior? Um, I think there's some evidence to suggest like that it is, the pandemic has changed the way that we're, um, you know, viewing nature. Like there was a study that came out earlier this year about how a greater proportion of e-bird observations have been um, made in urbanized landscapes, um, with the one exception actually being the New York state area. Um, And they attributed that to like a couple of things, like people kind of avoiding, you know, the cities or urban areas because of how bad it was. And also, um, you know, it was the New York breeding bird atlas. um, So that might've affected, you know, people looking at Kind of areas with greater diversity of nesting species, but um, I mean, there's definitely some, you know, some tangible evidence to suggest that it's kind of changing the way that it changed the way that we were going out to look at nature.
2: Hmm. I would definitely agree with that, Um, only because I was coordinating um, our Ohio Certified Volunteer Naturalist program and having to switch to uh, a virtual platform to take Hmm. the courses and get certification forced a lot of the participants to have to, um, limit their volunteer opportunities, um, that were further outside of central Ohio and focus on more of the urban kind of city parks, uh, to do their studying or, or research or volunteering. Um, so, uh, I think a lot of the participants were used to going out in more rural isolated areas, which still happens, but, um, I think forgetting about the, the importance of like the pocket parks and, um, Mm, city mm -hmm. parks, uh, that are utilized, um, and really tuning into that, um, to, to like hone in more, um, in regards to citizen science.
0: Yeah. And I thought some of the other, you know, side effects were, were really cool. Like they, they mentioned that, um, there were fewer road fatalities of birds Mm -hmm. this year because fewer people were driving. And, you know, it's those sorts of things that, you know, maybe as we learned, we all learned to kind of do our thing from home. I think people were driving less, people were doing things more. Maybe there's going to be more of that stuff, people working from home and both taking advantage of the nature opportunities in their immediate vicinity. And two, there's less opportunity for those sort of bad interactions with wildlife. Mm -hmm. One thing that I
4: found really interesting about this story was just how complex the relationship between humans and animals are now that, mm-hmm. you know, given how long we've been affecting the environment. I mean, because on top, I mean, there were, of course, a lot of these stories of animals faring better without our influence. But then uh, there were these interesting stories about with with less uh, people around, there was more invasive species. There were um more snow geese that need to be kept in check with uh, with with hunting and and it was just really interesting. I mean, of course, everybody I think by now has heard about this story of the seabird colony uh, where tourists kept the white tailed eagles away, and so it would lead <laughs> to more success of the seabirds when the people were actually there.
3: Just yeah, that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, that one really stuck out to me as just like it's not. At all, how I would, you know, like it's not a straightforward interaction there, and I think that really highlights your point, Ryan, that these aren't really the most easy things to predict. Um, how our absence will affect wildlife?
0: Yeah, there was an in, there was an increase in poaching in some parts of the world, which I guess you you know I I was awfully concerned, especially early on, about how it affects you know our friends and partners, you know, in the ecotourism industry. You know, we're 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 birders frequently, our friends with people who are who. You know, that is, is their job to take people to birding locations all over the world. And, you know, they did not have any business for about a year. And you, it makes mm-hmm. you wonder, you know, how important ecotourism is because without that, that money coming in from tourists, from people who are here to see the birds, you know, those people are sort of, I don't you know, they may need to just to keep, you know, to keep their family fed and the lights on to take advantage of some, you know, less, less beneficial activities.
3: Yeah, Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it just really highlights like all of these ecosystems that we care about are very much kind of socio-ecological systems, right? Like you have to the balance of kind of human well-being and um, the well-being of an ecosystem are very much related, right? And um, we've seen that this during the pandemic uh, really highlighted in a lot of places.
4: This winter has been really awesome for a lot of us, um, for especially us big finch fanatics, because uh, a variety of factors followed by a crash in uh, mass crops up in the boreal forest led to a huge eruption in eastern finches. Uh, By now, I think most listeners of the show probably know that, but it's actually been really awesome in the kinds of A- fact that people have now been able to experience these birds, but B, there's a lot more interest in studying them and tracking mm-hmm. them. Um, but what's so interesting, and there was a recent story in Audubon about this, is it just shows how hard these species are to track and understand. I mean, they are breeding in relatively inaccessible large swaths of uh, boreal forest, or even in, up in the up in the tundra and taiga biomes. Uh, and then especially in the cases of, you know, the crossbills, they're totally nomadic. And so they're not doing these expected movements, but they're just moving all over the place. Uh, But that piece did end thankfully with the fact that, you know, there are increasing numbers of tagging and and, uh, other sorts of initiatives that are going on that we're excited about. But the Finches are coming back north. So everybody uh, keep your eyes open. They're all on their way back.
0: I'm really excited about all this great Finch content, all this great Finch information that has come out this year. I don't know if it's because of the pandemic or just because that you know the the Winter Finch report that Ron Pittaway had done for so long uh, is now in the hands of Tyler Hoare, and you and Tyler Hoare and Matt Young have just done this enormous, all, all this work. If I'd known that we would learn so much more about Finches now, I, I might have said to Ron to, to give up the Winter Finch report. <laughs> years before no that's not true he's he's a he's a he's a, a, a giant in the field but it but I, and i love the fact that there's you know they're they're making as big a deal about the birds returning as they did when uh, birds were coming in the first place, yeah.
4: And what's cool is, so the Finch Research Network, uh, just from my speaking with Matt, who I know has been on the show before, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it's been a long time in the making, but the, the eruption this year, the super flight, really was able to serve as a jumping off point to get a lot more people involved and begin tracking these species and generate that interest. So in turn, you know, while the Finch Research Network's main goal is to begin studying some of its target species, like red crossbill, evening grosbeak, the rosy finches, um, it's also trying to kind of spread the awareness of these finches um and the fact that they're climate threatened. I mean, they breed mm-hmm. in these in these habitats that they're gonna be losing if uh if things keep warming. Did you all have any good finch
0: experiences this year, Miko and Nicole?
2: Um my experience um was more so of hearing about the pine siskins and how oh, they yeah. were being affected by salmonella. Oh, right. Um, yeah, that's a deal <laughs> right now. <laughs> um I have a lot of birding friends. Um more beginner birding friends who've gotten into getting feeders, watching um, from their windows um, or their backyards uh, as part of this, you know, bird watching has become this popular thing um, since the pandemic started. And um, a lot of them are unaware of, you know, that taking your having to take your feeder down is more beneficial for these finches um, instead of just, you know, assuming that, okay, they're going to go hungry or (laughs) I need to keep them up or, you know, I won't ever see them again. So that really put thing, things into perspective for me of just, you know, the knowledge around um, how we contribute as human beings to to that activity of bird watching.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I know there's been a lot of worry about salmonella down here. Um, yeah, feeding birds is a, is a responsibility. You cannot mm-hmm. take it lightly. Yeah.
4: Yeah, well, to the listeners, make sure that uh, if you have big flocks of pine siskins in your area, take your feeders down. And if you want to have feeders, you need to wash them pretty much every day and only put up as many feeders as you're able to keep washing every day.
0: Miko, did you have any finch stories?
3: Yeah, I mean, I haven't been, you know, I haven't been lucky enough to have them at my feeders. Um, But actually, Ryan was the one who showed me my first Brooklyn um, Red Cross bill, so I think there was at Floyd Bennett Field, they took me around and showed me those. Um, and then I actually just this past weekend, I had um, co- red poles, common red poles um, at oh, my local yeah. uh, cemetery. So, you know, they're around Brooklyn and that's been, you know, it's been a really exciting year for them for sure. Yeah, the red poles were the the last ones, if I
0: recall. There have been a couple of them even as far down here in, as North Carolina. But um, yeah, it's just showing up at, at random feeders as they do, um, but not very many.
4: Yeah, it's it's been what's been really interesting with the red poles this year, as much as having them around has been they've actually had a higher percentage of horries than than is typical. And so Hmm. obviously not down in North Carolina, Nate. I'm so sorry. No, no hoary
0: red poles down here.
4: (laughs) But folks in New York State, even as far south as Ohio, uh, even New Jersey actually uh, have had reports of hoary red pole around.
0: That's pretty wild. So um, do you think that we're going to get another big finch here? Because I know that people who are going to get into birding over the pandemic and put up the feeders and maybe even attract some evening growth speaks, I imagine that they might be extremely disappointed to, to find <laughs> out that that is not what's going to happen every single summer, or maybe it will, I don't know, or I mean, every single winter, I should say. So the way that the Finch forecast works is there's actually a huge
3: network
4: of folks who are observing mass crops um, and up basically the tree, seed, and cone production, and well as the fruits up in the boreal forest and other boreal habitats. And, uh, I think that they're going to be out observing and we'll see with the next, uh, with the next winter finch forecast, what, and that'll be in September, but hopefully with that, we'll see. And, um, will there be finches? Yeah, there'll be some finches, but you know, <laughs> the report, I wouldn't be surprised if the report said, you know, this might be a year to go visit the Adirondacks or Algonquin park mm-hmm. if you'd like to see them, but we'll, we'll see. We don't know yet. We'll all be ready to travel by then anyway.
0: So. <laughs> the,
3: the other thing that I think Ryan said earlier that Winter finches really highlight is just how, and that the Finch Research Network actually you know typifies is just you know these species really just highlight, I guess, th- how important it is to kind of collaborate and t- when you're talking about migration research, right? Like mm-hmm. just the spatial and temporal range of these uh of these species, it it's not something that a research group can kind of do alone, so. Mm-hmm. Um, it really it requires like these kind of cross collaborations across labs and across different you know research groups and networks and if you'll indulge me for a second that's like actually why i'm really excited about the stuff that i'm doing with the migratory bird initiative because that's a big part of what we're trying to do is get a lot of these migration migration researchers you know talking Mm -hmm. and um, get all that data into one place where we can kind of think about migration um, on a hemispheric scale and uh you know think about it from that perspective
0: yeah are they um, are they putting any GPS trackers on any of the birds? Do you know, like on the grosbeaks or or anything?
3: Yeah, uh, I'm Ryan might know better. I'm not sure. I know that there have been like geolocator studies. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there have been any um, GPS studies with winter finches. Yeah,
0: I'm just I'm just thinking of you know when uh, Project Snowstorm came out when they put the uh, the trackers on the snowy owls, and one of the amazing things uh of the many you know wonderful things that came out of project snowstorm one of the coolest things was you know every fall when the birds would get back into uh cell tower range all of a sudden there would be this enormous download this data dump of all the places that they had been over the summer and it was just like all these zigzaggy lines all over like northern quebec and Nunavut and and northern ontario and all these all these places i just can't imagine what that map would look like with uh evening grow speaks although i i like Do they, do they, are they as nomadic on, in the breeding range? I have no idea.
4: So there actually is thankfully a collaboration, uh, with efforts from the Pennsylvania natural heritage program. uh, And they're also working alongside the Finch research network folks that will be looking to use, uh, solar powered tags in order to track evening gross beaks and their breeding origins and sites and stuff. But, uh, I think that's all underway right now. So hopefully we'll begin getting data, you know, I guess in the next few years.
0: That's very exciting.
2: Um, something wonderful happened up in the <laughs> Cleveland area. Um, Lake Erie, I just came across this not too long ago, but I didn't think about it in terms of being like, okay, this is something that hasn't happened before, but just, I, I just got really excited because I wanted to know more about goals in general. <laughs> um, so this, um, article about the finding of a ringbill bill goal banded was something that was really fascinating in general. So Chuck was the person, um, He's a very well-known birder. I haven't met him personally uh, that came across this uh, ringbill gull up near Lake Erie. It was banded. So he noticed that right away and tried to get a few pictures of the band because that's not something you see every day. Mm-hmm. So he was able to and submitted that information to um, USGS Bird uh, Banding Lab um, and they were able to ID the bird band i believe uh that was banded in 1992 in toronto ontario canada and the age uh, i believe it will be turning 29 in june and that's the oldest um on record that they found for the ring Bill goal um so just are very fascinating to me just because there's such a, like a spectrum <laughs> of the type of birder, uh, you, you encounter. Um, so I think that just speaks to like attention to detail oh, totally. and bird watching sometimes becomes, you know, this very, um, mundane <laughs> thing sometimes. <laughs> so to, I, I, I would think for him, it was like really like, you know, kind of a heart stopping situation where you're just like, Whoa, like this is, really happening and, and getting that confirmation yeah. uh from the lab um i would have been yeah jumping for joy yeah i
0: thought it was so cool one you know that the that the band lasted that long yeah through like 29 years of like like eerie winters and also that you know knowing what gulls eat was mm-hmm. like literally anything yes <laughs> that it made it that long uh it goes to show that uh You can survive on a high-fat diet, I guess, if you're a bird, if you have a bird's metabolism.
4: (laughs) Yeah, this story was just so cool to me. I mean, the thing about ring-billed gulls is if you look at their longevity records, it's like five gulls that have lived to be older than 20, and then the Mm -hmm. next one is 14, and the next one is six. So most of these gulls are only – they're probably living like five to ten years, and then just Mm -hmm. a couple of these really lucky – old ones, but I guess it just shows that there's so little we know about these birds' lifespans that, you yeah. know, <laughs> yeah. you only can tell if you have people out there looking at these bands.
3: And and by mistake, <laughs> yeah. not even yeah. actively. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I really like about the story is just, it, it's, and I think this is kind of what you were saying, Nicole, is just there's so much more to birding than, you know, listing species or like seeing right. rare species. I think so often that's how we, those are the metrics we think of mm-hmm. um, when we, try to measure a bird outing, but you know, this is the most common, right. Or like one of the most common, at the very least goals across the country. Uh, and yeah. this, this is like one of the most parking lot goal every, exactly. almost across the entire continent. Yeah. Yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, there's such a cool discovery amongst such a common bird is a really cool thing.
2: This makes me think of just like that, uh, what I try to promote a lot with the things that I do of, of connecting, um, children and just people in general to nature is that sense of, um, a spark of, of, you know, that reignites your connection to nature. And that's like one of like, this is a situation where essentially that's happened. Like you're doing something, you know, I'm sure he's been doing this bird watching for decades. Um, But having that moment where it kind of reignites that passion is just very inspiring to me. So for me, it's more of, you know, there, there might be a kid or a teenager who sees the story and. You know, gets really excited uh, to want to do bird watching, or they've been doing bird watching and they kind of you know have become jaded <laughs> in mm. a way um, from from some of their experiences and don't find it as interesting anymore. But it's another way to open up another uh, door of awe and how we you know see the little things and how they can be spectacular, yeah. um, all those small uh, in nature. And yeah. I mean, tying
4: into that, this gull wasn't in like pristine gull habitat. This gull was at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River, like (laughs) 100, 200 feet from downtown Cleveland. Like anybody could go out and run into something like the oldest ring-billed gull. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) this wasn't like, you know, this was just, this was nature in his backyard.
2: Yep. Yeah,
0: we're, we're, I mean, we're we're lucky that we know it because I mean, there's nothing about this goal that would suggest that it's as old as it is. You know, yeah. rainbow goals are three-year goals that get their adult plumage when they're like in their third or fourth calendar year. There's nothing that you could look at a goal that's five years old versus a goal that is 29 years old and be able to tell the difference. You know, so there's got to be older goals out there. There's got to be birds right. like this out there, but you know, you'd never know. The only thing we know, the only way we know, is because we're fortunate that. You know, we had this this band, which gave us this little insight into this life of this bird. That you know, you you think you
2: know. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting because of how we see, like, age. How we think about age, mm-hmm. um, whether you're a human being or an animal. Like the fact that we have like uh, cats or dogs. We always say cat cat years or dog years. Right, right. But then, do we have something related to bird years that like is understandable to humans, or is that still like Unexplored.
0: I, I always thought birds kind of live fast and die young, but then you mm-hmm. get these these um, stories of you know a twenty nine year old goal and of course, you know, wisdom famously like almost seventy right. years old and still laying eggs and on Midway Island. The wisdom the the lays on albatross.
3: Mm-hmm. So,
0: you know, we have we have no idea how long some of these, especially larger birds, live. Right. They could <laughs> there was a, a kind of a funny uh, interaction on on Facebook about this uh, that involved Alvaro Harmio, who is a, a birder that a lot of people who who may listen probably know. He lives in California, and he was basically saying like our our ideas of the lifespan of some of these birds, like albatrosses, are often dependent on you know how long the the band lasts because mm-hmm. it's an aluminum band and they're saltwater right. birds and it's so corrosive, so the band you know just just wears away and the bird keeps on going, and so these birds could be Who knows how old they could be? We have no idea. Right.
2: So fascinating.
0: Yeah. So cool. (laughs) It's awesome.
4: I want to go out and find like the oldest pigeon in New York City now.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That pigeon has seen some things.
4: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, God.
3: (laughs) I mean, I think most of most birders are familiar with lights out programs. But in case anyone isn't, um, you know, these are programs that are usually citywide and they aim to reduce anthropogenic light um, during bird migration. And, you know, the aim is basically to reduce the number of window collisions from migrating birds that get disoriented by those anthropogenic lights. Um, and so, you know, these programs exist in Chicago, uh, New York, uh, Atlanta, Denver, and the latest to join the ranks is Philadelphia. So I think this news just came out last week and starting April 1st, um, a number of the prominent buildings in Philadelphia are going to switch off their lights between midnight and, um, until 6am. And then I think that ends in, uh, I don't remember when it ends exactly, but yeah. So for spring, this spring migration, mm-hmm. um, they'll be, you know, turning off the lights for migrating birds. And, um, I think this is largely in response to last fall migration. There was high numbers of collisions in Philly. Um, so that really sparked some, uh, some action to be taken on that front.
2: Yeah. I believe it's until May 31st. Okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah,
0: that's great. Especially considering how close Philadelphia is to some of the real migration hotspots on the on the East Coast, it certainly makes intuitive sense that Philly would be a, a really good place to uh, to make sure that that lights out program is working.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I love lights out programs. Like I think it's, so one, it's like a pretty low barrier. Like, you know, anyone can switch off the lights, um, from, for Mm -hmm. certain parts of the night. But I also think it's like the bigger thing is it's a really important outreach tool, right? Because I think so often urbanites tend to think of conservation as this, um, you know, far off problem where they can donate Mm -hmm. and do stuff like that. But, um, this is kind of a perspective shift where a lot of these, especially like these neotropical migrants are, you know, they're, they're coming from, from South America, Central America, and, um, you know, that conservation issue is literally flying over your apartment. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's such a cool thing to tell people. Every time I tell, like, my friends who aren't aware of this effect or these programs, they're just Mm -hmm. kind of amazed that we get all these kind of crazy migrants from, um, Mm -hmm. you know, different parts of the world. What I
4: love is that, like, Migration is such a part of the experience of the birds that, and it's so ubiquitous that I really encourage listeners to go outside during, just pick a day where there's south winds, winds from the south, stand on your roof and just listen. And I bet you that you'll hear these migrating birds. I mean, I've <clears> heard like f- uh, thrushes and warblers over my apartment in Brooklyn. If you were in Chicago or even on certain places along the Mississippi River or the East Coast, I mean, you'll hear them. They're there. So, I mean, this is a real issue and this is really happening
0: the idea that birds migrate at night even that you know, is yeah. such a like wow moment when you're talking to people about it like they they're doing what you know that it's it's so beyond the average person's conception that the, all this is happening when they're when they're asleep they think of birds as as daylight animals they think of mm-hmm. owls as night animals so the only thing that would be active is owls and the fact that you know these millions upon millions upon millions of birds are passing overhead every single night in the spring coming up you know in the next few weeks Is uh, is is, ah, it's one of those like grounding moments, I think, when you learn that,
3: yeah. And I think for all those reasons, it's a great outreach tool, um, and just a really cool way to engage the public in you know bird conservation. And I'm also just really excited to see that it's starting to be you know more data driven, right? The folks Mm -hmm. at Birdcast, Mm -hmm. like Kyle Horton, are using Doppler data and um, to kind of forecast when peak migration is going to be. That stuff is really cool. (laughs) It's so cool. And it's just like, it also highlights this point that, you know, if we focus um, a lot of our efforts on a couple peak migration nights in certain areas, like if we can be smart about that and really spread the word for specific nights, um, you know, we get the most most bang for our buck conservation-wise, right?
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, just knowing that there's tools out there to record these things is fascinating to me yeah. um that there's scientists and researchers who are actively uh collecting this information that the general public doesn't know about um and that it doesn't need to be like an, an invention <laughs> that it's already happening i think is, is really cool um and just having more of that i think you just need like more of this stuff in classrooms, mm-hmm. um, for, for youth to, to just see they can be a part of that. Um, that you don't have to be, you know, an old, older or old scientist, um, researcher <laughs> to, to be active or involved in, in data collection.
0: Yeah. It is one of the great ironies of, uh, of, our time, I think that, uh, you know, our ability to learn so much about birds and, and their movements is, is greater than it's ever been uh, while their populations are, are doing more poorly than they have. Not to be a downer, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think about that a lot.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think that the really big lesson that I hope everybody takes away is just that like, it's birds depend on the same planet that we depend on and things that you might mm-hmm. not even think about, like the weather, it really mm-hmm. is going to impact how they're moving and when they're moving and what they choose, the routes they choose to take. And, you know, it's like there are days, for example, in Brooklyn, where I'll receive a text from a birder who's been doing this for a really long time. And he's like, oh, you know, it's going to be a really good day for some random bird, Franklin's gull, dove key, birds that don't belong in Brooklyn. And it's like, because of the weather. And often they're right. Like the day that there was a day in February where there was like three dove keys that showed up in Jamaica Bay and somebody mm-hmm. called it. They were just like, yeah, of course there'll be dove keys. The weather is this way. And
0: so just yeah. knowing that all this stuff is so intertwined is just really amazing to me. Yeah. I have a friend who does that with uh, Franklin's gull actually was the last one. He did it just like you said, because that's one that seems to be you know relatively easy to predict you know there's a a peak of Franklin's School movement and if there's some really strong winds out of the west uh, when they're moving then some are going to get blown this direction and you're going to see them. I got my lifer
4: cave swallowed that way Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) I like for cave swallow this last year. I was like, I read a blog post that somebody wrote and it was like, just look for a day of like sustained weeks of sustained southeast winds followed by the first day of north winds. Go out and look for cave swallow. And I like went out to the shore where a bunch of other birders had all gone because they were like, cave swallows will be here today.
0: And like, yeah, Mm -hmm. cave swallow flew by. It was sick. (laughs) It's like (laughs) magic if you can do it. Before we go, I do want to comment a bit on the rediscovery of a thought-to-be extinct species uh, that is not the thylacine, which turned out to be a gigantic anti-climax. But uh, in Borneo, the black-browed babbler, a bird that was only known from a single specimen collected in the 1840s, was rediscovered late last year by two local men. It sounds like like they were birders, uh, but they did catch it, evidently, which I didn't quite understand in the piece. Uh, The report does not say how. Um, but they did report it to local birding groups. And anyway, it's, it is, a not to put a damper on what is a fantastic story that, um, while it wasn't considered extinct, it was not known for a very long time. And it inspired my question of the month, which is, um, what extinct bird would you most like to see in real life?
2: I would say, for me, the Carolina parakeet. Yeah, that's a good one. Just because of the plumage. Yeah. Beautiful colors, but also it was—I didn't know this was the only parrot species in the eastern U.S. <laughs> yeah, and that makes me sad.
0: <laughs> yeah, the thought that there was a uh, a parrot that was pretty widely widely distributed across the southeast, even yeah. as far north as like Pennsylvania, New York, is is pretty mm-hmm. pretty crazy to me. I tell you, I often think about whenever I watch like a piece of media or read a book or something that uh, is set in like the 1860s or early 1900s and stuff. And like when they don't talk about the passenger pigeon or the Carolina parakeet, it, it mm-hmm. always kind of makes me, it always irritates me. Cause <laughs> I feel like if those were around, like I would be talking about them all the time. So like, right. why are the characters
3: talking about Carolina parakeets? Why aren't
0: they talking about passenger pigeons? I want to hear that.
3: <laughs> it takes me out of the moment. I love those like naturalist <laughs> journals entries that are like, you know, passenger pigeons, like blotting out the sun and yeah. stuff like that. So and <laughs> I mean, I guess like I would, so to answer the question, I would, I mean, it's kind of like a easy answer, but I think passenger pigeon would be a cool one. Mm -hmm. Um, I also think like in the Philippines, uh, there, and this brings up a bigger point of like, but I'll start with my, my species. Like I'd want to see a lot of the fruit doves that have gone extinct. So there's, there was a huge diversity of fruit doves, um, in the Philippines and a lot of them haven't been seen in a really long time. And I'd really like to, um, you know, try to I want to see one of those but that also just I I don't know if like it's been quantified in any way but I feel like these um extinct species being rediscovered it feels like it happens more in Southeast Asia and like with the degree yeah. of biodiversity that they held and like especially the endemism that they hold um I just wonder that that range holds like I just wonder if that's really a thing like I know they rediscovered a stream frog in um the Philippines I think like last year that yeah. hadn't been seen since 1993. One that's closer to home for birders is like the Gurney's Pitta in Thailand Mm -hmm. that was like declared extinct in the fifties and then rediscovered in the eighties. And, um, yeah, I don't know if that's a thing or not, but it's just, maybe it's just what I'm paying attention to.
0: No, I think that, I think that you're right. I think that there is something going on. I don't know whether it is, you know, all the islands and that there's so much potential for diversity. And therefore there are all these kind of little lost species that people saw and then Wrote down or collected, and then no one knows whether it was like a real species or not. And there's all there's there's a lot of stuff going on uh in Southeast yep. Asia in terms of that. That feels like that's a, that's a real thing, not just not just something that you're noticing.
2: Yeah.
4: So for mine, like I don't know if I want to go the New York City angle or the Finch angle because there's mm-hmm. both of them. But I'm gonna go both. I'm sorry, we have time doing it. Yeah, we got time. <laughs> go for it. Yeah, do two. First do of all. Not. New York City it's crazy to me that we would have been able to see like great ox just from the city they yeah. were this was part of their wintering range like I could have gone on a pelagic trip if such a thing existed in the 19th century and there were just <laughs> these giant penguin like ox just there amazing to me so sad that they're gone but I think that even more so I wish that I could go to Hawaii as a Finch fan yeah. and have really experienced oh, the full diversity of the Hawaiian honey creepers mm-hmm. it's yeah. just it's so just the ecological like honestly colonial catastrophe that's happened on hawaii just from bringing the invasive species and all of these finch species are going away and there's so, so there now there's a bunch of threatened ones the the ones that mm-hmm. are left and it's just such a sad thing to see and you know as a finch fan i just can only imagine what it would have been like to kind of s- just experience the true diversity of all these different finches with all these different beak shapes just to be able to feed on this amazing like plant diversity and ecological diversity there. But, uh, you know, Hawaiian honey creepers are no more. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There were some really, really fascinating ones too. Like the OOs with like the really long Mm. tail. Yeah. Too, too good. Um, there's actually a really good book about extinct honey creepers. It's both amazing and sort of sad.
2: Yeah. The, um, think of the, paraly- the Carolina parakeet, the what was it last recorded or captive one was died in the Cincinnati zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, right. yep. and they mentioned it was the same. I heard it was the same cage as the last passenger pigeon, Martha.
0: Yeah. They, it was like, a. Year but it was art. like
2: a, yeah, a few years, <laughs> I think 1914, 1915, yeah. that information alone. is just like, wow. Like just, you know, thinking about the, the, it being the only, um, parrot species, but then having that connection to another extinct bird is, is fascinating. Um, but also like the hunting, um, and deforestation where some of the, or a couple of the reasons why um, their numbers dwindled. Yeah. I think they were considered to be a a crop pest. Yeah. They were very noisy. And I instantly think of starlings, (laughs) (laughs) um, But then starlings, I don't know. I feel like they're beautiful. Their plumage is amazing up close, um, but they're intelligent as well. So I think it just, you know, they get a bad rap and that's not cool.
4: I agree. It's so interesting also because now today, so many cities in in Mm -hmm. the United States have Mm -hmm. these colonies of monk parakeets, you know, this other temperate weather parakeet. And from my understanding, they're mostly much beloved. I mean, the ones we have in Brooklyn, people go in just to visit these monk parakeets. People love having these colonies of parrots. So I wonder it's just like, you yeah. know, if only the Carolina parakeet <laughs> could have stuck around for another like 50 years. Like would there have been like people just begging mm. to have conservation efforts to keep them around or yeah, something? That's
0: a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna go the parrot direction too. Um so I was I was flipping through my copy of All the Birds of the World, which I will again plug in this spot because it's an amazing book. But the the, there's a big section in the back that is a bunch of extinct species. Yeah, there was there was a, a species mm-hmm. of macaw in Cuba, Cuban macaw, as uh, you might expect. But the fact that there's—I mean, I've seen macaws in Central America, and they are. Um, they're, they're pretty amazing. I mean, just massive, massive parrots flying around making really weird noises. And uh, the, there was a really cool looking one. And The Cuban one was, was uh, red and blue and green. It was like just really, really brightly colored. Definitely one of the better macaws for sure. And that would have been really cool to see. Uh, and also just because we're naming two and uh, it's my show and I can do that. Um any any of the really weird flightless birds that were on islands before people came along and wiped them out? So like dodo, yeah, Mauritius. yeah, uh, well, the dodo. Like I yeah, can't even dodo. get my head yeah. around a bird as weird as that. And there were a couple <laughs> other pigeons, very similar, um, uh, reunion solitaire, and mm. elephant bird, and moa, and stuff like that. I mean, it's just it is it is sort of sad what we've lost. Maybe yeah, this uh,
3: this discussion kind of took a turn that I should have
0: predicted, I suppose.
3: <laughs> but, um, They're so weird. They're so weird. I think one through line I'm hearing is that there are a lot of um, island species that we all wish we could have seen, which, like, just makes me um, really Mm -hmm. want to take a birding trip to some, like, island somewhere um, and, like, see a lot of these species, you know, before, God forbid. Yeah, that's right. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well, rails are so amazing like that because uh, rails especially are everybody knows or a lot of birders know that like purple gallinoles mm-hmm. for example rails are just so prone to um yeah. to dispersing yeah. and, and, and getting lost yeah <laughs> yeah and so in the, uh, this is what kind of what happened in the uh, across the indian ocean and the pacific ocean is these rails would just disperse and then a couple of them would find an island and be like all right i'm gonna <laughs> live here now and then of course they would there'd be no predators because it's these little islands and they're like yeah. well, i don't need to fly anymore i'm, <laughs> I'm done
0: <laughs> yeah fast forward ten thousand years and suddenly you've got like some weird bonkers <laughs> rail and uh yeah but look at new zealand they've got like three or four of them mm-hmm. uh, flightless rails that turned into just yeah. really strange animals
4: rails are so cool it makes me i love especially the rails that like aren't afraid of people because you know when you go birding and it's like all right i'll clap I'll, I'll i'll never see a black rail i'll only hear clapper rails unless you get lucky but then like you go to new zealand and yeah it's just like <laughs> these silly birds are just chickens, like wandering yeah. around pecking at your food and you're like you're a rail like what the heck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you so much Nicole Miko and Ryan you can find them all online I will have a link to their work in the show notes as well as links to everything else we talked about I, I hope that the three of you have a really uh, great and birdy April the first you know real real spring and uh, thank you so much for for chatting with me today yeah thanks so much thank for thank
3: having you. me thank
4: you it was great yeah I love being on here Nate can't wait to talk to you again soon <laughs>
0: American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Please consider joining the ABA if you like what we do. You know what you get. You get access to our print publications about birds, discounts to our partners, and of course, our thanks as we build that better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. Get information about all our memberships, including e-memberships at abaorg slash join. I have some shout outs to make. John Sharda of West Columbia, South Carolina. Andrea Carpio of Costa Mesa, California. Daniel McDermott of Lowell, Massachusetts. Aaron Klanderman of Hamilton, Michigan. Emma Hollister of Brooklyn, New York. Juana Grant of Seattle, Washington, Chris Stafford and the Stafford family of Goodlettsville, Tennessee, and Daniel Kilbanoff of Washington, D.C., all of whom recently joined or rejoined the ABA and noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. It really does mean a lot that you enjoy what we're doing here. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who notes that the Demoiselle Crane was named after Marie Antoinette, so it's appropriate that they have been known to eat small, short-billed rails, exclaiming, let them eat crake. Technical production is by John Lowry, who notes that Philadelphia was only convinced to abide by Lights Out rules when they appealed to that city's love of the Flyers mascot. And from here on out, the twice annual peregrination of birds overhead is within the city limits of Philadelphia, known as Migration. don't make the rules. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who, when asked which extinct birds they would most like to see, chose all those fake birds that John James Audubon made up to sell books. Because if you're going to ask for the impossible, why not go all the way? You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, on Instagram at American Birding Association, and on Twitter at ABA. I know I really don't get a say in the ABA hires to fill those new positions, but if I had a choice, it would be someone who could add to our quote-unquote office list, which is all the birds in our respective yard lists added together. So, I don't know, Ecuador, maybe? Uh, not too much to ask. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, see you next week.